Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and if you are using the blue Bible in front of you, that is on page, I don't know. It's not in there today. What is it? 947. 947. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 26 to 38 this morning. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, 44 years ago, a miracle took place. The Winter Olympics were being held in Lake Placid, New York. And on February 22nd, 1980, yes, 1980 was 44 years ago, in the medal round hockey game, the U.S. played against the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviets entered the game having won four gold medals in a row and were just a dynasty of hockey greatness at the time. They had a dream team of some of the best hockey players in the world who had significant experience in international play. The U.S., on the other hand, were kind of a ragtag bunch of college kids who were the youngest team at the Olympics and the youngest hockey team in U.S. history. So this was your typical David versus Goliath. The Soviets didn't think the Americans even had any business being on the same ice as them. But then, the game happened. And wouldn't you know it, this scrappy bunch of nobodies from the U.S. were suddenly up 4-3 to over the mighty Soviets with only seconds to go. And being that it's in the U.S., the crowd is losing their mind counting down the seconds, and as they do, 
announcer Al Michaels in one of the most famous and iconic sports calls in history joins the countdown and then bursts out. He says, five seconds left. Do you believe in miracles? Nobody could believe it. Nobody thought this was even possible. And yet it had just happened. So the only word Michaels could use to describe what he was seeing that night and this impossible outcome was miracle. Now while that line still gives most of us chills if you've ever seen the video and it will go down in history as one of the most incredible moments in sports history, it wasn't really a miracle, was it? Now was it highly unlikely? Absolutely. Completely impossible? No. But there was something about seeing what felt impossible that thrilled our hearts then and still does today. This is why we love underdogs. We love to see what no one expects happen do by those that they never thought would do it. Because we love miracles. We love when the impossible happens. Well, this morning, we get to look at a real miracle. In fact, the central miracle of all of history. The miracle of God becoming man. And in our passage this morning, something truly impossible happens. And as you're going to see, everything about this story is miraculous. But it's not just a story about miracles. It's a story about grace. And what we're going to find this morning is what a miracle grace is. So grace is going to shape our outline this morning. So if you want to go ahead and throw that up, there you go. So we're going to see five things in the text this morning. We're going to see where grace shows up, how grace arrives, what grace provides, what grace can do, and how grace is received. So grace is kind of our our structure this morning. So let's look at our first point together, where grace shows up. Look back at the first two verses, 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. All right, so the first thing Luke does for us here is he links our passage with the one before it. When he says it was the sixth month, he doesn't mean it was the sixth month of the year. He's saying it was the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So he's helping us keep a timeline of events here. So what happened at this sixth month? It says the angel Gabriel, the same angel that appeared to Zechariah last week, he is sent from God. So God has something important to say, so he sends his messenger this angelic being, Gabriel, to personally deliver the message. So right away, we're reminded that everything that's about to unfold in this story is happening because God took the initiative. This is not in response to anything. God just says, Gabriel, go. Tell them this news. This was a normal, mundane day. And then suddenly, God broke into the ordinary with a message of grace that would change everything. Now, where would God send this angelic messenger to declare this message of grace? Last time, we saw with Zechariah that he, he was in the temple. 
Well, this time we see it wasn't to Jerusalem he sent him. It wasn't to the center of power in the capital city. It wasn't to the center of religion. It wasn't to the temple. Instead, it was to Nazareth, this tiny little backwater town. Nazareth was so small that Luke probably needed to include that phrase in there, a city of Galilee, so people knew what area this was in because they never heard of it. Like, I understand this because where I grew up, I would often have to tell people, I'd say, I'm from, if I told them the little burg, it'd be Ayersville. And they'd be like, I don't even know where that is. I'm like, well, do you know where Defiance is? And they're like, no, that's the next biggest town. But do you know where Toledo, Ohio is? And they're like, oh, yeah. I'm saying, okay, well, it's, it's in that area. Or I would say, it's in northwest Ohio. So that's what he's doing here is he's saying, he's from Nazareth. They're like, Nazareth. And they drew a blank. Okay, it's, it's a city of Galilee. Oh, okay, I got you now. So Nazareth was about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem and had maybe 500 people in it. So it's not next, a bustling metropolis. It's not even mentioned once in the Old Testament. Now, in case you're wondering, as I was, there are almost 300 different towns and cities mentioned in the Old Testament. So Nazareth didn't crack the top 300 in terms of importance in the Old Testament. Not only that, it wasn't mentioned in any other literature of the day. The point is, hardly anyone had heard of this place. And those who had, well, they didn't think very highly of it. Later, when Philip tells Nathanael that he's found the Messiah and he's from Nazareth, you remember that Nathanael asks bluntly, can anything good come from Nazareth? So Either people hadn't heard of it, which was maybe the best case scenario for them, or worst case, they had heard of it and thought, that place is not somewhere I want to go. And yet, that's where God sends Gabriel. He sends him to an obscure, unimportant place, which people didn't really think a whole lot of. Well, who's he sent to see there? It's not a well-respected older priest like Zechariah. This time it's an insignificant young girl named Mary. And we're told three facts in verse 27 about Mary that are important to the story. First, we're told Mary is a virgin. She's never been with a man. And that is essential to this story. Second, she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now the fact that she's betrothed probably means Mary was somewhere around 13 years old. That was about 12 to 14 was a typical common age at which these betrothals were arranged back then. Now we also need to understand that betrothal back then, while we want to say it's the same thing as being engaged today. Well, there's some similarities, but it was also quite a different thing. What would happen at a betrothal is the man and the woman would be pledged to each other in a legally binding ceremony before witnesses, and the husband's family would go ahead and pay the bride's family, the bride price. So that would happen in this betrothal ceremony. But the wedding ceremony and the marriage feast, that would be another year out. During that year, the man and the woman would essentially be married in all ways but one. They wouldn't live together or be intimate. And even though they weren't yet married, in order to break a betrothal, it required a divorce. And any sexual immorality committed with someone else would be considered adultery. 
Okay, so that's betrothal. It's a much weightier, more significant relationship than our engagements today. And we see here that Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph. We don't learn a lot about Joseph here. In fact, the only thing we're told about him is that he is of the house of David. What that means is he is one of King David's great, 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 great grandsons. Now, we find out other places in the New Testament that even though he is in this line of King David, Joseph is no royalty. In fact, he's just a simple carpenter. He's a blue-collar, working-class guy. Literally just your average Joe. So we got Mary, a young, poor, uneducated girl, betrothed to an ordinary, humble carpenter, living in this obscure little backwater town. And God sends his angelic messenger to this nobody girl in this nowhere place to deliver the most earth-shattering news ever. So even though we haven't even gotten to the announcement, right away we're learning something important about God. That he doesn't work according to the world's expectations. He doesn't do things the way we would or even the way we think he should. In fact, he delights in doing unlikely things and unlikely places with unlikely people. His grace shows up in the lives of the most unexpected ones, which is really good news for us, is it not? Because that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. He says to the Christians there and to us, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God loves to do this. That's his, his MO throughout all the scripture. So the good news for us this morning is, have you ever felt like God couldn't or wouldn't do something great in your life? Ever feel too weak for God to really use? Like, sure, maybe he'll let you be on the team, but he'll never actually let you go out in the field and play. Ever feel too messy? Like, yeah, I believe and I'm a Christian, but man, my life is, it's messy. That's the only word I got. Ever feel too insignificant? Too ordinary? Too young? Or too old? Had too many failures? Or do you ever just feel like there's, if you're honest, really no good reason why God would do something great for you? I have good news. Because that's where grace shows up. In the most unlikely places to the most surprising people. God's not looking for perfect people in perfect situations. He's looking for weak, foolish, lowly people to show how strong, wise, and exalted he is. He's looking for ordinary people to show how extraordinary he is. So if you're discouraged this morning that your life doesn't seem like it's good enough or important enough for God to do something really great, take heart because that's precisely where grace shows up. Second, let's see how that grace arrives. Look at verses 28 and 29. 
And he, that's Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So when Gabriel shows up, the first thing he tells Mary is that she is a favored one and the Lord is with her. Now when he says favored, he's using a word here that comes from the word for grace. Literally, we, which we could translate it saying, greetings, O graced one. He's telling her that she is the recipient of God's undeserved kindness. There is nothing she had done to earn this visit from an angel. God hadn't hosted a competition like America's Got Talent to see who would win the honor of being mother to the Son of God. And Mary had just wowed the judges. No, she was a young, poor, uneducated girl in the middle of nowhere. But God Most High had chosen to give her grace. Now, this is also where Catholic theology gets all mixed up about Mary. Catholics will often say a prayer that you've probably heard of that begins with the words, Hail Mary, full of grace. They believe that Mary has grace in herself to give out to others who pray to her. But what we see here in both verse 28 and we'll see in verse 30 is that Mary doesn't give grace. She is given grace. She's the recipient of grace, not the dispenser of grace. And so in that sense, she's no different than any other person. And yet, we need to acknowledge that God shows her a grace that no one else in history has been given. He chose her to be the mother of the Messiah. So while we can acknowledge and celebrate God's kindness to Mary, we don't pray to Mary. So Mary is told here that she's the recipient of God's undeserved kindness to her, and she's told the Lord is with you. Now Mary's heard the Old Testament. She's grown up hearing the stories, and she knows that that same phrase is said of people like Gideon and David. And whenever they're told the Lord is with you, God is usually getting ready to do something great through that person. That's kind of the setup. Hey, the Lord is with you. Now go do this great thing. So Mary's putting this stuff together and she knows, okay, God has sent an angel to me. He's telling me I'm a graced one. And he's telling me the Lord is with me. And when she's putting this all together, it says this causes her to be greatly troubled. This word troubled is the same way Zechariah responded last week to the angel. But Mary, she gets a greatly in front of her troubled. She's like, yeah, I'm as confused as he was. Actually, I'm more. I don't know what's going on. She can't figure out what this is all about. What is God up to? What is he doing in her life? Is it going to be hard? Will it hurt? What will this grace that she's receiving look like? And this is how grace often arrives. When it shows up, we don't know what to make of it. Grace catches us off guard, and we don't always recognize it as grace right away. In fact, it can be unsettling and scary at times. It's clear that God is up to something, but we're not sure exactly what he's doing in our lives. Have you ever had times like that in your life? When you know God is doing something, but you're not sure what yet, 
and it makes you a little uncomfortable. You hear, you know from other people telling you and from God's word telling you, you hear that it's grace, but you can't yet recognize it as grace. So you're trying to figure out, what is this all about? Well, that's how Mary feels here. She's trying to discern and figure out what this greeting could mean. Why her? What is God doing? What is this grace? So, sensing her uncertainty and trouble, Gabriel begins his announcement and explains our third point, what grace provides. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So just like with Zechariah, the first thing the angel tells her is, don't be afraid. And then he tells her why she doesn't need to be afraid. Why? For you have found favor with God. It's the same word here, this favor word. Don't be afraid, Mary. God has shown you grace. He's giving you a gift, something you don't deserve. What is this grace? She's going to conceive and bear a son. But not just any son. The first thing we learn about this son is that he will be named Jesus. Now the name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Now, this was a common name back then. This was, Jesus wasn't the only Jesus. In fact, that's why in the Bible he's often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth to make sure that people didn't confuse, get confused with which Jesus you're talking about. But the fact that God himself tells Mary, this is the one, this is the real Jesus. This is the one you need to name Jesus. He is the Lord is salvation. That's telling us, okay, this one's going to be different. Now, Mary doesn't learn this here, but we know from when the angel appears to Joseph in the book of Matthew that he's named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So this is one thing already we see that grace provides. Grace provides a savior. But that's not all. We learn more about the son. Next, we see he will be great. Last week, we saw something similar, right? John the Baptist was going to be great before the Lord. But Jesus will simply be great. No modifiers, no qualifiers, simply great. Now the only one the Bible says is simply great is the Lord. As we declared together in our call to worship, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Throughout the Bible, we're told that his mercy is great. His steadfast love is great. His power is great. His wisdom is great. And his glory is great. And Jesus, it says, is going to be that kind of great. He's also going to be called Son of the Most High. In other words, Mary's son is uniquely the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus has always been and will always be the Son. But now, this eternal Son of God is taking on flesh and becoming man as well. 
He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. Then Gabriel tells Mary that this son would be the long-awaited king. The one promised for ages, who would reign forever. See, God had promised over and over again in the Old Testament this king who would be descended from the line of David. We could look lots of places, but the one place we see it most clearly is in 2 Samuel 7. Listen to the promise God made to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the king that they've been looking for, that they've been waiting for, that all their hopes are resting on. We sang earlier, all my hope is found in Christ. Well, that's Christ is that one, that Messiah, that anointed king. They were saying the same thing. All our hope is in Christ. We're waiting for him to come. And now Gabriel's saying, he's here. Your son is going to be that king. The one who will rule over God's people and over the whole world. The one of whom it was said, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The son of God. The offspring of of David. That's why it matters that Joseph is of the house of David. Because God promised the king would be one of David's descendants. Now, if you're thinking really deeply, you're saying, now wait a minute. But Jesus isn't really Joseph's son, right? Oh, yes, he is. Joseph adopted him And that makes him really his father. In fact, the fulfillment of God's promise to send a king in David's line hangs on the fact that Joseph adopting Jesus made Jesus truly Joseph's son and therefore the offspring of David. And as this promised Davidic king, we're told that Jesus will reign forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Which means, right now, at 10.54 a.m. on January 21st, 2024, Jesus is reigning. And he will reign tomorrow. And he will reign next week. And he will reign next year. And he will reign when your great, 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 great grandkids are here, should the Lord tarry. And he will reign 10,000 of 10,000 years from now. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. Friends, this is what grace provides. In his grace, God gives us a savior to rescue us from our sins and a king to lovingly rule over our lives and the world for our good. Grace makes us part of a kingdom that will have no end. So whatever your need this morning, underneath it all, what you and I need most is this Savior and this King. 
We need to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And that grace is exactly what Gabriel is telling Mary about when he tells her about the son she's going to bear. But that raises an important question for Mary. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? See, Mary's not naive. She understands how babies are made. And she knows, I haven't done that. So how is she going to bear this son? Now, before we see the answer to that, it's important to note the difference between Mary's question and Zechariah's question. Zechariah asked last week, how will I know this? In other words, he wanted a sign. He wanted confirmation. Like, I hear what you're saying. Can you somehow offer me proof? Can you give me proof that this is actually going to happen, Gabriel? The difference in their questions is Zechariah was asking, can you really do this, God? While Mary was simply asking, how will you do this, God? She wasn't doubting it was going to happen. She was just understandably confused as to how. After all, she was a virgin. This seemed impossible. Which brings us to the fourth point. What grace can do. Look at verses 35 through 37. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. In other words, the angel tells her, Mary, you're not going to conceive in the usual way. Instead, the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the Most High, which is still talking about the Holy Spirit, will overshadow you. Now, when we read this language, it points us back to two places. First, it points us back to the very beginning of our Bibles, to creation. In Genesis 1-2, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He was overshadowing the waters, so to speak. And when the Spirit was overshadowing this empty nothing, God created everything out of nothing. Now, God's Spirit is going to hover over the emptiness of Mary's womb and create life out of nothing. A new creation is breaking in. But this language of overshadowing, overshadowing also points us back to another place. In the wilderness, once the people of God had been delivered from Egypt and they were in the wilderness, they built the tabernacle. And once the tabernacle was done, we read this in Exodus 40, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. In the Greek, it's the same word, overshadowed it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So in other words, when this cloud that all through the desert had represented the, the presence of God, leading and guiding him, when the cloud overshadowed the tabernacle, it was filled with the presence and the glory of the Lord. And in the same way, Mary would be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit 
And now she would be filled with the same. She would conceive a son in whom the whole fullness of God would be pleased to dwell. Now, notice that how all this worked exactly, we don't know. It's a wondrous mystery. Instead, what Luke focuses on is not the how, but the why of this miraculous conception. He says, therefore, the child will be called holy, the son of God. He says, you don't need to know all the details of how it happened. What you need to know is the result. The fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit is what makes the incarnation possible. He had to be born of a woman in order to be fully man, to be like us, to suffer for us. But if he were the physical offspring of Joseph, he'd have been just another man. Only the divine conception by God's Spirit and the virgin birth allowed Jesus to be both man and God. Now that's one reason, but there's also a second reason it had to be this way. Because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, it says he was born holy and not corrupted by the sin of Adam. Unlike all of us, every other person born, Jesus did not inherit Adam's sinful nature or his guilt. And we needed that. We needed someone like him in order to be rescued from our sin. As one writer put it, fallen humanity could not produce its own savior. He had to come from somewhere outside because a sinner couldn't save sinners. We needed someone who was like us yet didn't have sin. See, ever since Adam sinned, all of us have inherited his sinful nature and followed in his sinful footsteps. Just like Adam rebelled against God and said no to him being king over his life, we've all rebelled against God as our king. We want to rule our own lives and not submit to his rule. And this rebellion against the king deserves death. And there is no way for us to save ourselves. It is impossible. But God's grace does the impossible. He sends a second Adam, the true and better Adam, his own son, to die for us. Even though the son is holy and in his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin, this holy son died for those of us who aren't holy. He took the penalty for our treason against God and gave us his spotless record instead. Romans 5 says, For if because of one man, this is Adam, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. While mankind fell through the first Adam, in Jesus, the second Adam, we are restored. Our sins are erased and we are given righteousness as a free gift. Friends, God really sees us as righteous. Like I, I was reflecting on this this morning. This is unbelievable. That God doesn't look at you. It's not, it's not a charade. It's not like he gives you a mask to put on and you spend the rest of your life hoping that the mask doesn't somehow slip or God's able to see through it or see behind it or see underneath and realize, wait a minute, that's not really a righteous one. 
He makes you righteous. You don't need to pretend. You don't need to keep up an act. God changes who you are. So you can be completely honest with God. You can be completely vulnerable and say, God, you know me. Search me and know me. And he says, I know you. And because of my son, you are righteous. And it's not because we proved that we were. It's not because we earned that status. We couldn't. It was impossible for us to make ourselves right with God. So he gave it to us, as did you hear that phrase? An abundance of grace. And grace does the impossible. Gabriel wants to make that clear to Mary. So even though she didn't ask for a sign, he gives her one. He says, Mary, you know your relative Elizabeth. You know, she who is old and barren. Guess what? She's six months pregnant. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now that, that verse, that what he says, this is an echo of what another angel said to the mother of another impossible son who would be sacrificed and raised from the dead, at least in a way. When the Lord told Abraham that Sarah would bear Isaac, even though they were old and barren, Sarah laughed at the idea, remember? But then the angel called her out and said in Genesis 18, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer was and is no. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, O Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Job 42.2 says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, nothing will be impossible with God. Friends, do you realize what this means? It means that our God, the God of the impossible, because that's who he is, there is no sin he can't forgive. There is no relationship he can't reconcile. There's no problem he can't fix. There's no need he can't meet, no sorrow he can't comfort, no life he can't change, and no sinner he can't save. Because God's grace does the impossible. So how do we respond to that kind of grace? How, how, how is it received? Look at verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary has just received these mind-blowing promises that seem impossible. Not only that, she realizes this promised grace, it's going to cost her. This is not necessarily an easy announcement. Nobody's going to believe the truth about this baby. I mean, if you were to show up tomorrow, especially if you're a woman, and say like, hey, an angel told me last night that I'm going to be pregnant and it's, it's not going to be a husband's or anything. It's going to be God's son. Would they believe you? Well, guess what? Times aren't, it's not like back then people were saying this every day. It was just as weird then as it is today. Nobody's going to believe this. She's going to be seen as immoral. She's going to be, have her reputation destroyed in the community. 
She's likely going to lose friendships. She may even lose Joseph. She could lose her marriage, her financial stability. She could lose everything. But she doesn't push back. She doesn't question whether God can do it. She doesn't ask God to please do it a different way. She recognizes that she is a servant of the Lord. In other words, her life is his. She is his to do with whatever he pleases. So she humbly accepts what the Lord has chosen for her. She receives the grace he is giving and she receives it by faith. She trusts the Lord in his word and receives from his hand whatever he gives. Why? Because she knows God is good and gracious. So she says, in effect, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, this passage is more than a birth announcement. It's not less, but it's more. It's meant to encourage us. Because as I said earlier, all of us are in desperate need of grace. And none of us deserves it. And none of us has a life that makes it seem likely that we would be the ones to receive it. But the good news here is this. Grace shows up in the most unexpected places to the most unlikely people. It often arrives in ways we don't always recognize at first and it may unsettle us. But what grace provides is a savior who forgives all our sin, a king who rules over all things for our good and a never-ending kingdom where we can enjoy him forever. Does that seem impossible? It is. But God's grace does the impossible. So will you receive this miracle of grace with humble faith and say with Mary, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Or to put it another way, do you believe in miracles? I pray we will. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise your power that can do what nothing and no one else can. Truly nothing is impossible with you. God, would you help us to believe that? Would you help us to remember that? Lord, help, it, help us to believe it when it comes to our own sin, where we struggle. We hear, as we sang earlier, the voice of, of, our, of our adversary telling us that there's no mercy for you. There's no way God will ever really forgive you of that. You've blown it way too many times. God, would you help us to believe that there is no sin you can't forgive, that nothing is impossible with you? Would you help us to believe it when we feel like we're in a situation that there is no way out of? We feel hopeless and helpless. Would you remind us that nothing is impossible with you? God, when we have a need that there, there's no way it can be met, humanly speaking, would you remind us that humanly speaking is not all we have? We have a God with whom nothing is impossible. God, we praise you for doing the impossible by sending your son to become one of us and yet unlike us in that he never sinned. Thank you that he was willing to die for us and to give us his spotless record so that you see us as truly righteous. God, would that encourage us this morning and would you give us hearts like Mary who receive whatever grace you give us with humble faith and say, let it be to me according to your word.
Not my will, but yours be done. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,